Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. I think that there's an awareness that all these hands are making things that I wear and it becomes so special that I'm not just buying a garment because I like it, but I know that someone who made it put their hands in it and maybe if it's a sheep that I like or an animal or a plant that I have that connection to that. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, everybody. Hope you're having a good day. Yes, welcome to the Good Dirt Podcast if you are new here and you're a long-time listener, welcome back. We appreciate you so much. And either way, whether or not you're new or have been around, we have a favor to ask you. In order to make our show the best it can possibly be for you, we want to be providing the content that you most want, and that's most going to keep you around. We need you to fill out a survey for us. We know that surveys maybe are not the most fun thing to do, but we made ours really fun and exciting. So you'll see when you get there. (laughs) And also, we appreciate it so much because it really, like, you guys are what makes this show happen. And we want to keep bringing you the good dirt for as long as we can. So we are giving everyone who completes the Lady Farmer survey 15% off an Almanac membership. It's our online community platform that's just for Lady Farmers, just for Good Dirt listeners, And basically just like a whole universe of good dirt goodness. The people that are part of the Almanac are amazing. I've met some incredible people through there. And we have wonderful gatherings. We've got a book club. We do events. And we prioritize our Almanac members with all kinds of member benefits, like discounts with all of our favorite partners and brands that we admire for their sustainability efforts. So the Almanac is definitely a place you want to be. And again, everyone who completes this survey will get 15% off their membership. But that's not all. You'll also be entered in to a drawing for a free ticket, so $0, a free ticket to our online virtual slow living retreat. That's happening again this year. We've got three amazing presenters for that weekend. We've got Christy Johnson, all past podcast guests actually. Christy Johnson, Kirsten Shockey, and... 
Eva Cosmos Flores, and we've got tons of other fun surprises and activities planned for the virtual retreat. So that being said, you definitely want to fill out the survey. You do not want to miss out. So you will go to www.ladyfarmer.com forward slash survey, and that's where you will find the Lady Farmer survey, and we appreciate it greatly. Thank you so much. So as we get into today's episode, I am looking down at what I'm wearing, and I'm thinking about the fiber content, and I'm thinking about where it came from, and um, I usually like to stick to things like natural fibers. I make an effort to do that. Cotton, wool, certainly linen in the summer, especially. I like to avoid synthetics, but sometimes they're unavoidable. So like, what are you noticing about what you're wearing right now? So I have an old oversized tank top that the content information has long ago rubbed off, but I think it's 100% cotton. It's probably not organic cotton. And I'm wearing organic cotton leggings, but they have some spandex in them because they're a little bit stretchy. Yeah, anything that you're wearing that's stretchy is going to have spandex in it. And most likely that also includes your underwear and stuff. So if you're even thinking, if you're thinking about like everything you're wearing. So like I'm wearing packed underwear. We love packed, but it is, uh, so it's organic cotton, but it definitely has spandex in it. I'm wearing a thrift store overalls. So yeah, again, the content tag is long gone, but I'm sure it's just denim. But it was thrift stores. Yeah, so reused. Anyways, that's what I'm wearing. So I wonder if you're listening and you're in a position to kind of think about like what you're wearing, what's in it, who made it. It's always a good exercise to like connect with your belongings, (laughs) where they came from. Things you use every day. Yeah. Again, it doesn't really matter right now if you have the answer or not. And this is not a test. It's just an illustration of how's a consumer culture. We've come to the point where the sources and the content of our most basic daily needs are largely invisible to us. It's not something we are conditioned to thinking about a lot. Yeah. And it's kind of an issue in a few different ways, many of which we talk about here on The Good Dirt. But for today's episode, we are going to focus on one aspect of this really bit broad problem of of being generally disconnected from what we wear and what we use every day. Yeah, so back to the questions, what are you wearing and what do you know about where it was produced? And most of us really don't know a whole lot about that, but overwhelmingly the answer probably is it was not produced in the United States. Apparel manufacturing, which was once a major player in the U.S. economy, began shifting to foreign shores from the 1960s when we produced approximately 95% of our own clothing here in this country until today when the number is only around 5%. So maybe that's a surprise to many of you, maybe not. Uh, It was definitely a surprise to us, even after we had decided to start Lady Farmer and our own apparel line made from natural fabrics, sewn in the U.S. If you're a regular listener, you've probably heard the embarrassing story of how we went to this huge trade show out in Las Vegas looking for all of the domestically grown organic linen that we were going to use to sew our first clothing line. And if you haven't heard that story yet, you'll hear it in this episode. Yeah, that was five years ago. And at least we can laugh about it now. And we can celebrate that there are people out there now who are putting their heart and soul into bringing textile manufacturing back home. And that brings us to today's episode with our guests, Sandy Fisher and Daryl Van Alsten of Chico Flax, which is a textile company based in Northern California. They are pioneering or re-pioneering regenerative production and processing systems for flax in our country. You know, it used to be, flax used to be grown here, and then it just sort of went away for a long time, and so they're bringing it back. Sandy is a textile artist who's been weaving for 35 years. In 2012, she began the pursuit of a locally sourced fiber that would become Chico Cloth. Durrell taught with the Butte County Office of Education before he launched his encore career with Chico Flax. They are true trailblazers, and we were so honored to talk to them and to bring the story of their work to all of you. So now we'll turn it over to Sandy and Durrell and let them tell you the ongoing story of Chico Flax. Sandy and Daryl, welcome to the show. Would you mind telling us a bit about who you are and your background and how you got to where you are today? Well, shall I start? Yes, okay. please do. I'm a professional weaver. I've been weaving for 
well, I hate to say it now because it's going to date me, but over 40 years and always use natural fibers. And it wasn't till about 2012 that I was in my studio, the phone rings and the Bangladesh fires had happened. And, you know, thousands of people were, were killed. And a local activist in my town said, I am not going to buy my clothes unless it's all local. What are weavers doing? And um, I said, well, I just kind of thought, I looked at my yarns on the wall and I said, I could weave you whatever and we can go local and we have a lot of wool, you know, that's available. And she goes, well, let's get together. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking that I'm saying that you're 2012 because a lot of things were going on. You know, you have Rebecca Burgess with Fibershed happening. And then uh, another woman who wrote raw material, Stephanie Wilkes, on wanting to knit with local fiber. So it's kind of an interesting energy that was going on. And I, I, I know it was happening elsewhere, but also I'm, I'm just thinking because I'm here in Northern California. I, I've thought about this often and I, I find that fascinating. But anyway, women, we got together and we had lunch at a lovely garden and there was flax growing in the in the yard and because it's summer we are having extreme heat right now but it's not uncommon to have days of 100 or plus and it was one of those days and you know wool was not appealing so we thought <laughs> oh let's grow flax and you know here i've been weaving with flax that's something i've always used and i always wove with cottons and it actually helped me redirect the way i weave i never really thought of where my yarns came from and i'm embarrassed to say that but Back when I started, it was just the material, the textures and the colors. Yeah. And here it was, you know, right in front of me, this door opening up. And that's all I weave now. I don't weave anything. I mean, I'm, I've got these yarns on my shelf. I'm going to use them because I have them. But when I go to get my yarn, I'm, I'm always getting my local area or what I'm growing. So that's transformed me, which I find really exciting. So anyway, we, we were talking about this flax back in 2012. And so it ended up... Let's meet at the at the center where she was active, uh, very involved called the Chico Peace and Justice Center. And so we actually got a room there every Thursday once a month and we would meet and we had like 40 people in this vision of what can we do? Oh, Sandy, you're a weaver. Let's do like Chico cloth. Let's make a cloth that represents us. And I was quite excited because my weaving background, I learned to weave in Northern Scotland. So they have the district checks or like county checks. And so I thought, why don't we do something with that? So we got talking and talking and we had all these ideas and then the months go on and nothing's happening. And I'm going like, we've got to see if it can grow here. So we got some seeds, fiber flax seeds, not flax for food that was specifically for that. And we took a little plot and 10 by 10 plot and we grew it and we went with the traditional way of growing flax which is a hundred day lifespan but in europe if you plant it in april you're going to get 100 days you're going to be able to harvest in june but that's like almost 100 degrees here so we had a real problem you know fiber was very straw like and i'm going to put durrell in here because he came up with a great idea so we're, how we've advanced to where we are today. Okay. So. What what we did the second year when so many people dropped out yeah. um, because they found that it was a lot of work. That was part of it. And if you had, oh, you know, no. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. besides that, we, we had zeroed in on real fiber flax. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people using and, and admit that they're using a food flax, which is okay because you can get fiber from it, but it's not high quality. So we, uh, we talked with some farmer friends of ours at a, at a party in October one year, and somebody said, well, it's an annual, just plant it like we do winter wheat. So we've been making it a winter crop ever since. So, so Joe, maybe a little bit about your background. Oh, my background. Because you, know, you, you kind of got involved <laughs> on a small scale doing our garden. Okay. I was a public school teacher for 35 years, and my encore career is now a regenerative agricultural flax farmer. Oh, wow. I will not say that again. <laughs> uh, so my background, as a kid, we moved all the time, and we lived in agricultural communities because my father and grandfather were in the farm machinery business. So I, I've been around it. And so it's it's almost a natural thing to get into. And I'm enjoying it. We are collaborating with the Center for Regenerative Agriculture at Cal State University, Chico. It's a really good program. They're getting a lot of attention. They do a lot of regenerative agriculture at their farm, in addition to traditional farming. At, I think it's a 700 acre farm, That's something in that neighborhood. Honest, yeah. 
so they've got some really big orchards because we're in a heavy orchard area and a lot of uh, row crops and cover crops and this sort of thing. We bought in completely to the regenerative idea and it's been working quite nicely for us. This last spring was the first time we could add the animal component. Yes. So we, we hired 400 goats to uh, come in and very casually eat all of our weeds and our really nice crop that we had too. And so we've, we've uh, let's see, was there five different components to regenerative agriculture? We've got all. We, we cool. uh, grow endomycorrhizal fungi. I'll say that again too. But uh, we grow that in a beam reactor. And when we've done a field or part of a field with, and then a part of the field without, the part of the field with these fungi added to the planting, phenomenal difference in the end product. And that's, that's kind of where we are, except yeah. for going on with, and I know she wants to say a lot more. Do you now have the goats or they come temporarily? And they, temporarily. they come temporarily. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's a big business now for fire yeah. suppression in, our, yeah. in Northern California mm. uh, to have the goats come through and clean up all the underbrush and they'll go up certain trees quite a ways and get rid of what uh, what is a tremendous amount of fire danger. Wow. So, um, I was going to say that when I first talked how we all started, you know, it was on small gardens, community gardens, a person who had maybe a quarter of an acre we worked on. Yeah. And then in 2017, I think that to answer that question of where, how we got to where we are now, uh, one of my textile friends had an acreage, several acres and behind her house. And it was an old almond orchard that needed to come out. So she approached us and said, Hey, you guys, you know, I'll give you a really sweet deal on renting. And it's got a beautiful barn in the middle. It was like, yes. You know, the barn, it was a great space, 3.75 acres we've been working on. And oh, that's, so, that's not as much as I thought. Oh, yeah. Well, you can produce a heck of a lot. I mean, we yes. are still doing little bits of it with our flax because we're rotating with the cover crops and we've had to heal a lot of the soil because traditional way of doing the almonds is to put pre-emergence around the base of the trees and then grow some kind of, let the weeds and you just mow it between the trees and the orchards. So this is how it was done and 18 years or so it accumulated. And when we first got this little area, it was a little bit later than when we wanted it, but it was in February. So we did like a 50 by 50 plot to see. And boy, you could see the pre-emergent was still in the ground because wow. where the trees were, there was stunted little flax. And then where the, the rows of between the trees, it's nice and tall. So we did research, we found, you know, called the county and, and I said, you know, I, I don't even remember the chemicals, something very strong that they used. And he said, oh, that should dissipate in 24 months. She hadn't used that for over a year because the trees weren't producing. And here, you know, we were well beyond the 24 months. And, you know, it, that was in 2017. We have seen the streaking, it's going away. I think having, we were doing tilling and that seemed to kind of eliminate some, it seemed to kind of evaporate. And so those areas weren't as strong. I think the constant, the mycorrhizal has helped, you know, having the cover crop rotation, they're getting stronger. So because of that problem we have, we've only done like an acre here, an acre there. So we're starting to get to that expanse now where yeah. we've been actually seeing tremendous change by not yeah. having the striping. And two years ago, we were about to harvest, I think it was five hundredths of an acre less than two full acres. Really nice, good quality flax ready to go. The Wednesday, we had a group of volunteers coming up from the Bay Area. 54 people had signed up to come and help us harvest. The Wednesday before our harvest, the state of California shut down thanks to COVID. COVID. So no one was willing to experiment with going out and visiting with other people and, and took it seriously that this was a, going to be a big deal. Mm -hmm. Well, it was. And by the time we were able to get a few people out and practice social distancing, uh, we didn't wear masks out in the field, but we did when we were in the barn or associated. We harvested about 15% of that two acres and got some really nice quality. I, I think we were expecting 
somewhere over 20,000 pounds. And no, that doesn't sound right. But anyhow, we were expecting a large amount. We ended up with about 2,000 pounds of dry straw. You know, multiply that by 85 uh, hundredths and you would then end up with what we were expecting or could have gotten. The weeds took over. We didn't have people to help. And as a consequence, we tilled under all of that stuff. We mowed it, mowed it, and then tilled it. So that was disappointing. This year, we cut back and planted just over an acre and a quarter and kind of the same thing. We could not get volunteers, so we hired a farm labor contractor. And before we could get him out, time passed, and we still didn't harvest as much as we wanted. And and in some respects, it's good because right now we're having a hard time finding people to help process. That was going to be my next question. What are you doing with that? Okay. We we got a machine two years ago. Right. Yes. That's when we started really doing. We we collaborated with the engineering department at Cal State University, Chico. Uh, and, and they were the team that was working on our project had removed from the school virtually all of the parts and pieces and plans that they needed and were working on it at home before the COVID hit. And that's to make a mechanical break. And that was to do a mechanical yeah. break, which rapidly really increased. I, we estimate that the machine can do in 90 seconds what a person can do on the old mechanical break in about five minutes. Yeah. So it increased our productivity and ensured greater quality at the end. Yeah. And one of the things that first year we got the farm and we had this small, smaller volume than what we had, we decided, well, if we're going to keep doing this, we have to make a product. And so even as laborious as the flax processing is, we actually got plans. We made a traditional break, a sketching paddle, and then the hackles with the nails. And we hired three other people, myself. So we had a crew of four and we got up really early in the morning and we worked till like 11 o'clock, you know, from six to 11 before the heat got bad. And we produced about 750 pounds. We were so proud of that within a month because I I had to watch my budget, you know, we were hiring people and I thought, wow, you know, four people who could work together as a team, we rotate the jobs, we could make it happen. And then that's the following year. That's when the college student, we mentioned earlier, we have a a really close connection with the agriculture department and other departments because they're so excited about what we're doing. And I think, well, Daryl's teaching background and I've taught a little bit so that we we kind of magnets to that, I think. And it's actually been very helpful that the engineering department heard about us. And it was one of the professors that had done his, one of the senior mechanical engineering classes, put it together. They made a mini break. And we didn't know this was going on, which is quite exciting. And that's when we heard about the capstone project for this one class. And that's how we got those students to come in. So this is our second year using the mechanical break. I mean, it still needs more work, but I can get quite a bit done. Um, And it's probably the smallest crew I've had, but I have one woman and she and I go out there, you know, and we're we're getting it done. And what's the product that comes out of the break? Is it? The break is the first one. The product is... Toe, toe, the short, short oh, fiber straw comes out of the break first, then and the then toe. the then the the toe is the product. Then and you send the toe to get a spun. Yeah. Yes, and, and that I blend right now because there are no linen mills in America, so I can't do pure. Yeah. So okay. as it gets down the line, the toe goes to. I've been marketing some wool and flax blend, and then I've been working with the cotton now, which I'm, I really want to focus a lot more with Sally Fox's brown cotton, so kind of keep it local. And we've been blending it, and I want to do more with that. So yeah, the toe is used for that, but I am acquiring quite a bit of the long line, um, just wow. so that someday... Yeah. Well, we, we've had a teaser yeah. from some friends in France who have a friend who has a small linen mill, linen spinning mill, and so we asked them to ask him if he would be interested in doing a sample for us and what would the sample size need to be? Well, he responded that about 100 pounds of long line flax linen, linen. it's not linen until it's spun right. in the United right. States. Right. And so we're, we're looking for that. When we yeah. get to 100 pounds, I think we'll send him the 100 pounds of long line linen and we will then have 
uh, 100% linen yarns. Yeah. And uh, hopefully, well, they can produce some really nice stuff in different sizes. In sequence, we have a wool linen blend. It's completely local. The uh, sheep vo that volunteered their uh, wool to us uh, had survived the campfire. It burned all around their, their pasture and it, they lost one wooden fence post, but they were in the part that was being irrigated as the fire burned through. So they, got, they survived, they got trimmed up that following spring and gave us their wool. We then made a, a wool linen blended yarn and Sandy has dyed some and our website has some uh, pictures of the different colors. And then last year we had some really nice toe. I mean, it was absolute drop dead gorgeous. And we sent it to the uh, University of North Carolina and they did some experiments and came up with a cotton linen blend for us. And this is where the Sally Fox colored cotton comes in. She gave us, no, she didn't give us, but we bought from her brown cotton and mixed it with our linen yarn. So it's a 100% natural color. There's no dyes or anything added to it. And uh, again, I'll use this drop dead gorgeous. Uh, Sandy just put some things on our website, Instagram. Uh, Instagram. It, it, it is really nice and it's yeah. gotten some really good reviews from professional weavers knitters. and knitters. Yeah. Right now it's looking pretty darn good. It's clean. It's as far as toe goes, it's a longer fibers than some of the really short stuff. How do I know my flax is ready? Yeah. It actually starts getting a little yellow at the bottom and greener on the top. That's kind of your clue. And you might start losing a little leaves at the bottom. So then you, you're kind of pulling it when it's still got a little green on it. You know, it's not, it's not all golden. Then you let that dry just, you know, so that you get some of that green, you know, just naturally the green dies out. So you want it pretty yellow by the time. And I go through something called redding. Now in probably where you guys are in the East coast, I know a lot of people that are growing it can do ret because they get the dew from the humidity and that gives you and in france it's like that too and that gives you that gorgeous gray color it's a, it's a fungi that comes on the outside um, that causes that and then there's the water redding which is the golden so let girl talk about our dew redding in a little bit because we don't have dew so we've had to modify the water redding and, you know, you're going, oh my, I, I mean, my mind's going, I'm in a drought. What am I going to do? You know, because that's, I don't want to use a lot of water. So we have tanks that hold about 35 pounds of our dried flax and about a hundred gallons of water. And, and it replicates a pond. And so I, I'm not draining it a lot. And it's kind of, it creates kind of like a sourdough starter. It's a very stinky oh. smell, you know, and it's very organic. And that's bacteria that's eating at that and you know flax fiber is a bast fiber and that means that the, the fiber itself is on the exterior of the plant so the redding process has to break down that core and it's very woody so so then your fiber can come off of it so the water redding or the dew redding is a process that does that so when I put it in the water, I might, I just drain a little bit and that goes out into my field. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually enhancing my composting by doing that. So I, I don't feel I'm wasting the water totally. And then I can drain a little bit out of it. So when, when the fiber is ready, um, after about three to five days, I'm going to have to test it. So I, I'll take out a bundle and I let it dry. It has to be dry. And then I take from that, it's going to snap it. Like I hear a snap sound, I break it you know, with my hands, or I'll take a strand and wrap it around my finger. And then that'll start separating that fiber. I'll start seeing the fiber. So when that's all done, then I start the actual mechanical processing of it. Okay. When I can get the redding done, that can stay in my barn for a good few years. It's, it's not necessarily good to let it sit for, I, I read someplace, they found some that was over 50 years old in Europe and they were able to process it. It may not have been as great quality, but that readiness, it's key that you, you can get that done yeah. during, and for us it's great because the summertime is warm, it dries quickly. Yeah. Um, and then I can let it go for months before I can process it. Because we don't get dew, and dew is nothing more than the moisture in the air condensing as the temperature drops at night. Well, we have a very dry climate. So even though the temperature drops really low, maybe, well, low being into the, 60s, we, we don't get much in the way of dew. I, I think you can probably count them on 
10 days a year. We experimented quite a few years ago with the, a, an artificial dew redding. And I found a nozzle that puts out a very miserly amount of water, very small water particles, and they're in the air for quite a while. And we around this standpipe, we uh, put the straw and then rolled, turned it every couple of days. In 10 days, running about five gallons a night, which is not a lot of water, and we had a 40-foot diameter circle, so that's a, that's a lot of flax, and in 10 days it was ready, and this was our artificial dew ready. And, and I would turn people on to the Big Book of Flax yeah. by the Zinzendorf brothers. Where are they? In, they're in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, isn't it? They're in yeah, Pennsylvania. Yeah. They go into it in great detail, and they're both really nice people, uh, and more than willing to help. Okay. So after the writing is done and everything's dry again, because you can't do it wet, then then the the break, and it's, it's this freestanding, I'm going to try to describe this, and it has like almost an arm that comes down and it, it crashes down onto the flax. And like then a it, press? I'm picturing like a, like a printing press or a book press. Uh, well, well, no, it's more of like a little arm. Pressure? That, yeah. Yeah. Crashing kind of thing. Yeah. 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 yeah okay. Oh, I've so, seen this on YouTube. Yeah. yeah YouTube, yeah. you can go. There's yeah. a great YouTube. Yeah. On that. There's a lot of those. And so, what the class, the students developed were like cylinders, round cylinders that I have on one side, I feed it in and it crushes it. And then I have someone on the other side to retrieve it. And so, then we can take it through as many times as we need to, and it will get all of that core broken. And, and then you get tons of debris, you know, straw and scrape. And then you have to sort it, the broken core from the fiber? Uh, no, you don't. Well, yeah. that comes later with that combing. It'll, okay. But at this point, it's really critical. If it's been redded properly, it will come out really clean. A lot of that shaft, oh. it's called yeah. shaft, will drop to the ground. And then we then take it to the combs. We find that this, this system works so well. I, there's something else called a scutching paddle, and that beats it some more that the brake may not get. And we don't really do that because I found that when it's, I got to the pieces I could ret really well, I could just go right to the combs. Yeah. Cool. So then it goes through, the combs are like, over a thousand, they're beds of nails really that are, and there's, there's, they're spaced. The first one is they're spaced further apart. And so you kind of put it on top of the combs and let it kind of fall into the combs. And you literally are, I kind of like it's meditative. I mean, you know, even if I got more automated on the first few parts, which are really critical, I don't mind standing there combing. And that takes off some of the straw and the shorter lengths is what it's doing. It's sorting and make, it's making, it's letting the toe come away. And, and those are shorter pieces that have caused during the breaking. And it's fun because I've watched people as I train them and, and you start out with this big handful and you come up with this itty bitty one, you know, as you learn, finally you learn where to draw the line on your combing yeah. and you can, you can actually get a pretty good bundle to, out of it. But the your tendency is to overcomb. So you'll do this first one. And then the second group goes as fun. The nails are closer together. And then the third one. And then I just take that little short, uh, what's left in the combs, I take that and I put it in the bucket and that's going to go towards my blends, my yarn blends. So the toe is pieces that are too small to actually use. They're short. Well, they, they can be used. I mean, yeah. you can spin them, but what you're looking for, ideally for pure, pure linen is you want those really long, long yeah. strands. So that's what your goal is to end up with all these processing steps, the longer pieces that you know that, i mean uh, when we're I, i'm showing you how long that is but i use a number i mean you're going to get over uh, you know three feet length that's oh. good oh yeah and the long piece that's the line the yeah the line line the long line yeah long, 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 line, long, 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 long line that's oh, and the other thing i didn't mention that's really critical is when we harvest it we have to pull it right we have to have the roots so maybe you've heard you pull the flax mm -hmm. because you want the roots and then you want the top part. And during the whole process, I'm, I'm very conscious of keeping that root end together and then the seed end. Yeah. And you can actually feel the difference when you're combing. There is a subtle, it's a coarser feel to one end and it's softer where the seed heads are. And I'm not a spinner, but I've talked to some of my local spinners that they find that, ha that, that the reason you want it, the coarse, so you're spinning it, so you have the coarse end, and then the finer end can join, it joins, it blends it, because there's no, it's not like wool has barbs on it, right? I mean, the, the different fleece. And so it's, it, there's nothing like that. And so that kind of made sense to me when you get it, they have to get it wet. 
and then the root end can join to the head end and then you can continue. At the microscopic level, yeah. the fibers start in the roots. That's why they have to be pulled. Yeah. And they taper slightly towards the end. And the closest thing others people can imagine or, or have some familiarity with would be a, some bamboo, because not only do they taper from the bottom to the top, but uh, linen fibers have these little microscopic nodules along that fiber. And when twisted together, those add that incredible strength that you get when you pull them nodule to nodule, so to speak, and make your fibers. And that's why the, the long lines allow you to make really fine, fine threads or yarns. And then the toe will do the in-betweens, especially for other things where you don't need to make them so, quite so small. That's about as technical as I want to get. <laughs> That's fascinating. I, I want to interject here a quick story. Good Dirt listeners might have heard this story already, but I guess four years ago when my mom and I first started yeah, Lady it's Farmer. Been five years. Oh gosh, five years yeah. ago when we started Lady Farmer, our mission was we started out, we wanted to produce a line of sustainably produced clothing. And neither of us have any experience in the fashion industry. So, which was probably, which I is think. why we started a business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At the end of the day, I think was actually really helpful because we just went in asking all the, you know, the dumb questions, so to speak. So we went to this someone who we know, a family friend who has been in the fashion industry forever said, oh, you need to go, you're starting a clothing line. You need to just go to Magic in Las Vegas, the big trade show, just to see what it is. And you can see the sourcing area and everything and pick out your fabrics and stuff. I don't think he really understood what we were doing. And so we went there and we're like, oh, this is great. We're going to design clothes. And then we walk up to the to the like sourcing booth and we're like, can you point us in the direction of domestically grown organic linen, please? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, and there everyone was like and we yeah, were like right. what? Yeah. Yeah, we were like, you know, you don't have made in America we organic linen. No. <laughs> And now here we are. It feels very full circle for me, Mom. I feel it like does. we're talking to the king and queen of <laughs> domestic regenerative linen. It's an honor. We oh, found them. I know. <laughs> it was like just the beginning of our path, you know. Yeah. Yes. Our first, you know, our first thing. It was literally like a month after we came up with the idea to even do linen. Yeah, we were like, why can't we find yeah. linen clothes yeah. in the yeah. USA? Place, yeah. Even anything. Exactly. Yeah. Was, um, yeah. That place was the size of like, I don't know, five, ten football fields. I don't yes. know. Oh, yeah. yeah. We've, we've been, been there. I've done we've some conventions yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. there. Yeah. Any, said, then we said, is there anything, anything made in America domestic? And there was this like little corner. There was like literally a little corner with a yeah. couple of little booths with pamphlets. Yeah. about mm -hmm. oh my gosh that was the biggest eye opener though it's like mm -hmm. well, yeah, i know it yeah. so anyway th but thank you for that explanation of yeah step by step of the processing yeah. because you know you think and you said it so well how you know people they get the idea of how much work it takes because you sort of fantasize about oh we could we could grow a little snacks and then have a party for people to come. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we thought that it's so funny. When I think back when we first did this, it was like, yeah, the oh, volunteers, yeah. we could have fun. We'll yeah. get music. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah. There, there's that side that I, you know, now that we, we've hired this crew, it was amazing how productive they were. And, and what was so fun they for them is that they had never picked flax before. It was all yeah. almonds, olives. Wallace, okay. you know, yeah. and they just loved, they loved the change of it, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, over just my own experience, I found ways, well, okay, I'm not a machine, but how can I replicate how the machine harvests? And one of the things that these, my dream machine is to get a harvester, you know, yes. but till that day. And so we would pull and then we'd lay it down. And so we create those rows, right? Mm -hmm. That works until you have what happened to us this year, because we did harvest early because the crop was ready, which was in March. But we also, because our, our we had such a dry February, the weeds just kind of got crazy. ahead of us. They went crazy. So we couldn't oh. do that nice straight line. So we had 
<laughs> so I just said, I said, don't bother with the crew. We're just going to pull around them, you know, yeah. and, and I'll come find them later and bundle them up, you know. So that was quite an yeah. eye opener yeah. too this year. But it was so nice to have people that would, you know, that's what they were doing. And, can, and I think it deserves to be paid. Can I, can <laughs> I share the yeah. Belgian yeah. flax harvesting machine story? Just, just, I was, was going to ask Cal to tell a story. <laughs> yeah, tell a story. He's good at stories. Here we go. Well, anyhow, we, we kept seeing these things on. YouTube or yeah. yeah, European YouTubes and and what's that other one? Vimeo or something. Yeah. There's a couple of others where we could get these videos. And I'm going, wow, what's the name on that flax harvester? Oh, I wrote it down. And we started contacting oh, these yeah. people and they never responded. Yeah. And I thought, oh my gosh, they must think we're really small time, but we have a whole acre now. <laughs> and so anyhow we finally got through to them through our friends in france because they could communicate in french and the our, our friends are in the textile business also so anyhow they could speak the same use the same vocabulary and and be understood uh well it turns out they quit making the small ones around world war ii and this was the ones that'll harvest three feet wide or six feet wide they now only harvest 24 feet wide. So anyhow, and they only sell to people who are heart or growing 5,000 acres at a time. Yeah. Oh, oh. 5,000. That's, that, that's a little beyond our farm. And, and also, I thought it was interesting. He kind of expressed that he wasn't dealing with individual farmers. farmers he was yeah. dealing with countries. countries. Yeah. You know, like. Yeah. His yeah. client is oh. Belgium. Yeah. 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 Right. So, anyhow, but he was friendly to us after he responded to us and invited us when we come uh, to Europe to go and which, see their shop, which, which I would I do, do you know? uh, because their machinery was really famous from the yeah. oh the twenties up They've until up until World time. War II. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's so. fascinating that so. it's literally not made anymore. Yeah. And because we kept asking about, you know, hey, I would like to have your six foot roller. You know, no, they don't yeah. even make it anymore. It can't have been that long since people were doing this by hand, you know. No, no actually, oh, in, in Oregon, go ahead. Um, yeah. they had the industry going up till about the 60s. Yeah. And um, they had a smaller scale harvester that's now, I think, in a museum. And what happened, if you think about the 60s, for mass production, linen just got pushed aside yeah. because, well, it wrinkled. Who wants that? And then there's these polyesters and the lycra. And so the fashion yeah. world, one of our acquaintances on the East Coast was a retired teacher from the Fashion Institute of New York. And he had this pie chart. And it's only like, you know, the fashion is like, there's still a lot of these synthetics, you know, and then you've got wool and you've got cotton and then linen is just a tad on there. One or 4%. One, no, 1%. 1 okay. Drills. 1%. Okay. 1% of the total fashion market, market uses linen. Right now. Yeah. Yes. And it's, it's yeah. been that way, but it's always had such a elegant aspect to it. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to, you know, I think the royalty, they would wear those long line clothes. Yeah. They would never wear, I mean, toe was made into clothes for the peasants, but they would never wear that. Yeah. So, I mean, it still has that classy, I mean, silk has that too, you know, but, and, and I always think of silk and, and linen kind of as buddies, yeah. you know, the same on the yeah. same scale of, of class. And I, and I, I think that I'm all for the small scale flax industry. I mean, I think even in America, I think that that's kind of the way that we can make it happen. I mean, there's several that yeah. are sincere and wanting to try it and keeping it small, keeping us, get those little harvesters made again, getting our equipment small. Because, you know, even though we're not doing our 3.75 acres, when we do, we can produce a heck of a lot, a lot. to make some yes. money off yeah. of it. Yeah. Somebody yeah. needs to yeah. make yeah. a small harvester. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I think so. The, I mean, the, you know, get out there. or locate yeah. one. I mean, have you, I'm sure you've looked. Are there any like antique ones that are? No, no, no. What's, okay. what's going yeah. on? worldwide there's a resurgence of interest in flax okay so used equipment up until about 10 years ago was available yeah. you could find used equipment today no there yeah. aren't any and in he, fact that's what that man said to us is, this is this is what came out yeah. historically yeah. The, the historical sequence of this is that DuPont came out with uh, monofilament uh, nylon in the late 20s, I think it was, just before the Depression. During World War II, at the beginning of the war, most of the parachute cords were linen. By the end of the war, they were all nylon. 
and parachute cords became the standard for bootlaces for da 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 on and on and on. And so that's that was one of the killers. Even though in in some places linen was always a small scale industry with co-ops or industries within a country or a province would get together and then do something with them. So uh, it, it's different. And yes, in Oregon, one of the things that was mentioned in an article uh, for killing the industry, uh, besides some other stuff, but the biggest one was the closing down of using prison labor to do the harvesting and the processing. That is really interesting. You know, it reminds me of the hemp story as yeah. well. Because hemp was a homestead kind of crop, if you yes. know, yeah. small scale, bit by hand. And I've heard something similar to the, not the parachute cords and the shoelaces, but hemp was the main oh. for its sails for the boats. Yeah, yeah. there was a and it was also Baltimore that used yeah. in the military and then the nylon sort of just replaced it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 That's interesting because, you know, you sort of see a trend that these small natural operations were pushed out by the the big synthetics, mm -hmm. and and here you go, and you know reversing that, turning back on that is um, proving to be quite the task. So, what was the original seed though for you guys that planted the Maryland? The variety? The, uh, it, it was oh, I mean the the proverbial seed, the um, the <laughs> idea. <laughs> that too. I wanted to know that too. <laughs> My question to but, Durrell was leading into, we'll get back to that, but my question to Durrell, I wanted to, what have you guys seen in terms of like growth of the movement or, you know, consciousness or awareness? Have you seen it like just really blossom where you are? People well, understanding what this is about? Yeah. In, in the last couple of years, maybe just because we've been out there, we've had a lot of people contacting us about doing small scale, maybe their barnyard or, or they've got a, a small parcel and, and want to try it. And one of our friends in Yuba City, Marysville area, which is only about 50, 60 miles away, he got the idea. He was a x-ray technician. He's no, still, he was an still, RN. He's still part-time. Yeah. Anyhow, he's, uh, and he just thought, oh, I can make a shirt. Yeah. So he's bought some seeds and he's been growing it for several years. And uh, spinning it himself and learning to weave and so, so and then learning to weave yeah, so and sometime soon he'll he'll get, get there. there yeah we're f seeing more and more people with that sort of obsessive compulsive or, uh, component <laughs> mm -hmm. and i think yeah. and i think in some ways that's what it is because the other component we're seeing is uh we got a call from a grower who had put in quite a few acres and had harvested his stuff for seed and sold the, the seed. He, and he said it was an oil seed, which is essentially the same thing as a food flax. Anyhow, and he said he's got these big round bales that he, he's got a tremendous number. And he, I think he was thinking I would buy them and we could process it into linen fibers. And when I got through telling him that no, that you, you, you if you grew it to harvest seed, you grew it way past it's right. usefulness oh. as a fiber. It, oh, it, it's no no use. I, I said, if you've got a lot of it, you could probably sell it to this mill in, it's in northern Poland, and they do nothing but make baler twine and light ropes. And they, their oh. thing is to use uh, to use those kind of fibers. But he didn't want, I think he was really wanting to sell it. That's the other component that we're seeing is people want to make some money real oh. quick they'll grow it. Well, you know, we're not buying it, yeah. but we'll let you come and process it or come and we'll work with you and train you on how to process it. So you can either get disillusioned or you can go on with it, you know, There's and not that, much of a quick, quick, anything about no, it. No, there, there isn't. No. no. And, and the worst part from our perspective is if somebody said, Oh, I've already read it. And you go, oh my God, no. <laughs> and, and the chances are that it wouldn't be useful anyhow. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess what Emma was asking was, Daryl, if you were already growing linen before Sandy, flax. Excuse me. Yeah. Before Sandy. <laughs> Sorry, I understand. Had her moments or and, and got her group together. Which is oh, a story. What was inspiring you way back when? Before. Oh well, we we kind of hit that together. I I I didn't want to get too involved. 
at the very, very beginning for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, I waited until all these numbers of people were self-selecting that they would continue or not continue. And then I got involved in the mechanical technical stuff. And that's kind of my forte. And Sandy, of course, is the, the you know, the fabrics and the, uh, and the, the, those things and the artistic side, because she's really a great artist. So speaking of that part of it, so yes. currently in your operation, what is your output? Is it, are you, Mostly R&D, are you producing this toe, it sounds like mostly, and then selling that? How is, how is this working for you guys now? Well, I have to say, just because we couldn't get a, like a whole acre done, you know, uh, it's more of an R&D, yeah. but it's okay. enough for me to actually make a product, you know, because cool. I can sell enough on a limited, yeah. limited scale. Um, I'm finding, um, I've had fun with weaving it, you know, and I'm finding that a lot of my, my clientele are people who want that finished product. And, yeah. and the finished so, product being like a woven piece of fabric. A woven piece, yeah. And yeah. I've been doing shawls and actually created my Chico back. To, remember, I talked earlier about Chico cloth. Well, I did yes. the fabric that way. So I, I still want to see that happen. And I'm kind of drawn to having more of the finished product right now because of the it's a it's a doable volume that I could do. But I also want to try like oh, what last year I had enough. I, I put them into um, for the wool and uh, flax blend. I put them into 50 gram balls and I was going to go to some yarn shops. Well, everything was kind of closed down. So, so this year I see myself in the, in the San Francisco Bay area. There's a, there's a couple of them that sell locally sourced wool. And I'd like to try that to see, because I feel like if I have the product out there, my demands are there, then why not expand my production end of it and Mm. work out that? I mean, it kind of all works together. One of the things that we recognized several years ago was we have to have a product. Mm-hmm. Okay. If we can't sell something, we can't pay for what we've been doing. In the big picture, it's research. Yeah. But we've developed some things that are saleable. Yeah. And, and, and for the most part, despite the economic situation in the United States, thanks to COVID and the burn, burn fires that are going on and this sort of thing, you know, we've been getting well received. We are in a process now where we need to extend that area of being well received and encourage some purchases to take place mm-hmm. so that we can continue what we're doing and then expand even more. And then you have a table at Magic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Before yeah. we run out of time, I want to talk about the dye hedgerow. Is that what y'all call it? Okay. Yes. 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 Oh, this okay. Is, this is good. How that came about was we were uh, awarded a California Department of Food and Agriculture, Department of Food and Agriculture grant to put in a hedgerow. It was all for carbon sequestering. And so I thought, you know, let's go California natives. I want to select ones that bloom all year round. And a lot of those are my dye plant. We have elderberry, coyote bush, toyon. A couple of them I'm going to experiment with. That I We have a buckwheat, but I don't know if it'll die, but we're going to do some more experimenting. Yeah. But after four years of that, they started producing last year for the first time, especially the elderberry. 17 varieties of California yeah. natives. Yeah. 14, wow. of, 14 of them are dye plants. Yeah. There isn't a time period throughout the year that we don't have something blossoming. Yeah, that was my goal. Oh, that's lovely. But, and yeah. it's really neat to see. I, I highly encourage hedgerows because I've seen habitat and pollinators and birds coming back that weren't there because the, you know, the, the orchard didn't sustain them. And, and it's really wonderful to see that. So there's the, the plus on that. So that's been, you know, when I started getting the elderberries out of it and I started dyeing it and our barn actually has a space that I'm making it into a dye area where we can offer workshops where people, there's a whole group of people that are creating like a little, I'm going to call it a club, an organization of natural dyers. And so, you know, I've said, Hey, let's get this here. You can come and die. Cause it's hard to get a facility in your kitchen or your backyard to do that. So that's one of our future goals. And through a, a seed fund grant from um, Fibershed, we actually are acquiring some other plants that I can, as borders that we're planting. We had some calendulas, coreopsis. We were shorthanded. So this next year, I'm going to be putting more in the fall for growth. Couldn't quite get there this year that I was hoping. So that's the next phase for us. And oh, that's wonderful. So yeah. is elderberry one that will stay? It's not a fugitive. It, it does oh, fade. A, it, it does fade a little bit, 
but you know, I, I always put that as a little, to me, I, you know, a lot of the plants, I want to have them, of course, last longer than others, but I think that's the wonder of it. If it does fade, you know, so I, as you, you know, you, we're, we're so used to things needing to be like, you know, permanent, like, like plastic. And, you know, we need, we can think about it a different way. Like it is a plant, it is a living, vibrant thing Mm -hmm. in it. Yeah. So I'm going to try some of my elderberry. In our climate, elderberry is a year round. We get color. Only once a year. Once once a year. But we've got, when we planted elderberry, most of them were eight inches high. Yeah. And many of them are now over 12 foot. Yeah. Yeah. They get enormous. Yeah. And they're kind of like, I've heard they like edges of things. So like, oh, it's a great, it's a great, for hedgerow, I highly recommend that. They're great. Yeah. Yeah. So what does the good dirt mean to you, literally or metaphorically? You know, I think good dirt is helping the world with all the climate change. And it's so in my face right now. I mean, I go outside and I can't, you know, breathe very well. So I feel like putting my hands in that soil, that's going to create that fiber that I'm going to be putting on my loom to then having harvesting that elderberry. I mean, that's the good dirt to me. Yeah. It's, it, it comes from within, yet it's also around me. So For me, when we first took over this property, after the orchard was removed uh, and the stumps pulled out or ground, no, they didn't grind them, they dug them out. And uh, it was a, a really fine soil. Uh, it's uh, river bottom soil in the Great Valley of California. Beautiful stuff, grows anything but it had been mistreated with chemicals and mechanical things for quite a few years. Anyhow, what I'm seeing, what makes me feel good, like we do have good dirt, is that that now I can go out there and in our cover crop and I can pull up a weed and pull it out by the roots and there's an earthworm. We did not have earthworms anywhere on the property uh, when we bought it. We never found an earthworm. Yeah. Uh, we found lots of ants and we still have ants. We still have those, those little Red fire ants, ants yeah. things. But so now we almost, I can pull up a weed and almost every one of them will have an earthworm. So I pull a little earthworm out, put it back in where it was Aww. and then back the soil down. That so is good dirt. It, yeah. it, it means to me that now what I grow here is going to be healthy. If I'm going to eat it, it's it's going to be good for me, whatever it might be, because we do grow a few other things out there once in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that we're contributing to the reversal of the, what I want to say, monoculture, high use of petroleum products for fertilizer, for weed control, for- The finished yeah, product, you and, should have and, that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to getting a shirt too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. Is so. there anything else that you want the listeners, the world, your people to understand about the work that you're doing? I think that there's a lot of, of the creator in it and yeah. that should be appreciated. And I, I've always had that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've always worked with my hands and, and way back when I was in college, I went to Africa and it was, I wasn't a textile person then, but I was with, I lived with a tribe of people and the bead work they did was all handwork. And then we went to a, a little island off the coast of Kenya called Lamu and they had boat builders and they were all built by their hands. And so I think that, that there's an awareness that all these hands are making things that I wear, you know, and it becomes so special that I'm not just buying a garment because I like it, but I know that, that someone who made it, you know, put their hands in it. And maybe if it's a sheep that I like or an animal or a plant, that I have that connection to that and that I, I can purchase that outfit and feel good about it. And I, and I think that that's the awareness I'd like to bring to the to people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would like to be able to say to all of your listeners that if you are interested in trying this, rather than reinvent the wheel, you could communicate with us and we can either point you at something or share tips on how to come up with the combs quickly, easily, accurately, meaningfully. I have some, a tool that really works. And, and other parts of the redding, the yeah, tank redding, the uh, artificial dew redding, uh, and stuff like that, because there, there's a lot of stuff that 
I'm seeing a lot of people are going through. I'd like to help you not have to go through it again. That is so generous. It is. I mean, resource sharing, ed- yeah. experience sharing, all that. That's, that's not a- very capitalist of you, Dara. <laughs> <laughs> Consultation fee. No, thank you. That's great. And that's what this community is all about. Mm-hmm. Yes. Going for a new way. And, yeah. Uh, yes. Thank you so much. Well, y'all, this was so interesting. Um, yeah. I loved it. Emma and I have come a long way since the magic thing in 2016. Yeah, now we get it. <laughs> and our, and we have found true resonance with this. Our job now is to help other people understand yeah. why there's no domestically grown yeah, organic linen. What you're doing. Yeah. I follow you guys on Instagram, and that's where I heard about you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yay. I go, I know who they are. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, please don't forget to go to www.ladyfarmer.com forward slash survey, where you will tell us about all of your hopes and dreams for the Good Dirt podcast. And you will get your 15% off the Almanac membership and be entered to win a free Slow Living Retreat ticket. And thank you again, Sandy and Durrell. For coming on and telling us all about your exciting flax project and helping us to bring domestically produced linen back home to the U.S. of A. We are excited about this. Yes, this one's very exciting. All right, folks. We'll see you next week. Bye. See you next week.